Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 6th of August 2019 and this is episode 125. Just to remind you that we are going to be on our holidays for the rest of August and we'll be back on the 2nd of September. On today's programme, Antonio Garcia talks about his recent book on the South African campaign against German South West Africa in 1914-1915. This is published by Hillian. I spoke to Tony from his home in Edinburgh. Tony, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and the 1914-15 campaign in German South West Africa in particular? Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, I first became interested in the campaign during my undergraduate studies at the South African Military Academy. I used to be a SATO in the South African Army. And uh, during my, my career as an officer, uh, I renewed my interest when I did a master's degree in history. I did this by full dissertation. So like many serving officers, um, I decided to study a historical campaign. I did this uh, through a new lens. And this combined my interests of military theory as well as military history. So uh, once my master's was completed, I guess um, the bug bit me, and I was hooked on on studying military history. Then working with a team of South African military historians, I did some subsequent research. Uh, I presented some papers at some conferences and seminars. And then at the end of 2016, I decided uh, to resign my permanent force commission, and I then took a sabbatical. And during this time, I collated a lot of my previous research and revised it. And then uh, in 2017, I submitted a book proposal to to Hillian. uh, And I guess uh, the rest is history. And indeed, that book came out, um, was it last year? Yes, uh, it was actually just earlier this, 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 this year. Right, well, to set the scene, we're going to talk about the campaign in German South West Africa. Could you start by giving us a broad overview of the political and military situation in South Africa at the time, but also German South West Africa, and for our Eurocentric audience, including me, where is or where was German South West Africa? Yes, sure. sure. So, uh, so uh, German South West Africa uh, is situated in southwestern Africa, uh, at the risk of sounding too, that's very obvious. Uh, and it's the modern-day state of Namibia. And interestingly enough, uh, from a personal point of view, when I was a child from about three to five years, my family lived in Namibia. And so the link between South Africa and Namibia comes from the First World War. And uh, following the, the armistice, effectively after the German Southwest African campaign, Namibia became a protectorate of South Africa. And that was definitely way before my stay in Namibia. In 1894, it became a German colony. And the German forces in southwest Africa, unfortunately, uh, they committed mass genocide on the Herero and the Nama people. Uh, that's a tragedy that in modern times is receiving more academic attention. Uh, Germany controlled the colony until 1915, which marked the end of the campaign. But officially, it was a, a colony until 1919. We had the Versailles Treaty. Southwest Africa was made a protectorate of the Union. Uh, of South Africa. Uh, then in terms of the political situation in the Union of South Africa in 1914, it was, it was definitely a complex one. South Africa was a dominion of the British Empire, and it represented a, a sort of an uneasy marriage of, of poor and British interests. 
And the backdrop was that of the Anglo-Boer War, where the Boer Republics of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State uh, lost their independence in 1902. And from that, a group of young, uh, dynamic, uh, dashing generals came forward, and those would be the, the future leaders of, of South Africa and would be key players in the campaign. And they came out from the commando tradition. Um, should I explain this, this term commando in, in terms of the Boer tradition? Yes, I think that that was, it has many other different connotations, uh, certainly in Europe, and, and including the non-wearing of underpants, but that would be useful to get, to get, it, get its original source. <laughs> so, um, unrelated to underwear, I think, uh, in, the, in the Boer tradition, uh, commander refers to a military force, uh, and uh, they were generally comprised of part-time or volunteer forces, and they were renowned for their mobility, using horses and the, the marksmanship. And, uh, of course, as a fighting force, one of the, uh, the major drawbacks was, was the lack of discipline. I think there's a... I don't know how much accuracy this, there is to this, but maybe your listeners would, would correct me, but apparently the modern term commando, uh, not in terms of wearing of undergarments, but the military force uh, in special forces comes from this term. Um, and apparently Churchill was involved in that. Um, well, I look forward to be corrected. But coming back to this point, uh, Louis Buerta, Jens Mutz, Herzog, De La Rey, De Vett, Kemp Bayes, and many prominent leaders in 1914 came from the commander tradition. And um, this would also comprise economic, military, and political spheres of influence, so it wasn't only the military side. Then in 1914, uh, the Union of South Africa, which was a dominion of the British Empire, uh, went into war. At that point, the Prime Minister was in fact a Boer general, that was Louis Porter. He was supported by Ian Smuts, and they proposed a policy of conciliation uh, between Boer and Breton. This, of course, received mixed reviews, and where the Porter government had many supporters in the mineral-rich Transvaal, coincidentally where Porter had uh, much of his support base, the Free State, which was more an agrarian economy, uh, they opposed British control very strongly. So the fusion in South African society was evident in the political arena. There were two uh, cabinet crises in the preceding years. And then in 1914, things reached boiling point with the outbreak of the First World War. And for many Boers who had fought against the British just 12 years prior, uh, that was just a bridge too far. This was the spark to the underlying factors, and that included jealousies, competitions, poverty, and also, I put forward, the relative deprivation. So why do you think a book on the campaign is necessary? I think this is a, a good and interesting question. And uh, I think my first reason would be personal interest. Uh, I wanted to explore parts of the campaign uh, that I thought wasn't addressed previously. Um, and I thought it was, in some ways, it's timely. I believe that there's a growing interest in the First World War. And with the centennial, there's been a, a considerable increased uh, historical output. And as scholars research the Great War from many new angles, uh, the discipline of history uh, broadens and, and shapes to a modern world. I think uh, history, according to, to, to some scholars and theorists like E.H. Like, uh, e. Carr, says that it's an unending dialogue between the present and the past. And so in line with that, my interest uh, was in honoring all those who served. And thus, uh, while I acknowledge and respect you know, new social histories, uh, mine in, in some ways is a throwback to the older campaign histories, um, I think, but I would 
to some extent, I'd like to think with a contemporary twist. So uh, in writing the book, I considered a number of key issues. Uh, I considered was the campaign won because of numerical superiority. I put forward that the campaign was, in fact, won because of the execution of an operationally superior campaign and strategy, and that was congruent to the principles of maneuver warfare. I also had a layup analysis on the cause of the Afrikaner Rebellion, examining it uh, using relative deprivation theory. I also considered the role of people of color in providing a combat support role and enabling the maneuver forces to achieve the objectives. This, of course, uh, many people of color did with the hope of achieving political franchise, and this was something that wasn't to, to be realized not until 80 years later. Uh, I added also a layer on the use of aeroplanes during the campaign and further examination of the operations to quell the rebellion. So that those were my main points in looking at the book, and uh, it was for the most part based on primary research. So let's get to the campaign. Now, once, the, once war is declared in Europe in August 1914, South African forces move to attack their northern neighbour, which is German Southwest Africa. And they move north to attack uh, German forces. Can you tell us what happened in the opening stages? Yes. The, the opening stages of the war uh, proved to be a difficult moment for the Union Defence Force. Uh, they were new, uh, newly formed. Uh, they were created after the 1912 Defence Act. And it combined British military units and then commandos and rifle clubs in, in the Boer tradition. So the defense force in that sense mirrored the uh, political situation in the Union in that it combined two parts of society. And the combination of these uh, divergent doctrinal uh, traditions made for, for an interesting and, and sometimes a complicated military situation. So if I could uh, stereotype both parts just to give a bit of background, uh, the British regiments uh, were regarded to have stronger discipline, but were highly centralized in terms of command and control, where the commandos were poor in discipline, but strong in mission command and the use of initiative. So in the opening phases of the war, a Union force advanced north and crossed the southern uh, German Southwest African border. The Boerter government, who had given the assurances to uh, the British Empire that they were on board with the war and uh, attempting to achieve the geostrategic aims of the empire, uh, were keen to commence the invasion. And then Brigadier General Lucan was in command of the force. Uh, he was cautious and asked for, for more reinforcements before attempting his invasion. Um, the Boerter government was also keen to take off pressure from an amphibious force which had landed in Luderitz uh, on the west coast of German Southwest Africa. However, with, with increased pressure, Lucan, holding the majority of his force back, sent a small force detachment to Sanfontein in German Southwest Africa. And the reason for the deployment to Sanfontein was because it had a water source. So all through the campaign, a critical consideration was logistics and also the availability of water. Uh, after all, the Union Defence Force was crossing a desert. So the Union Force at Sanfontein was effectively surrounded and defeated by Colonel von Heidebreck, who at the time was the commander of the Schutztruppe, and that the German colonial forces were called them in German Southwest Africa. Um, the South Africans put up a valiant effort, uh, but eventually they were surrounded and outgunned, and they were forced to raise the white flag. Lucan tried to relieve the force. He tried to send out 
uh, some detachments to relieve them, but the Germans had positioned blocking forces. And uh, so the campaign resulted, it started with a bloody nose for the Union Defense Force. And uh, a prominent Boer commander, Manny Meritz, was ordered to support Lucan's advance, uh, but this was an order he refused to obey. And his reasons for this would later prove to be that he was conspiring with the German forces and he subsequently revolted. So we're going to come to that revolt, which is known as the Maritz Revolt also, but also it's known as the Afrikaner Rebellion and the Boer Revolt. Now this was obviously a, a, a military movement by Boer elements within South Africa. Can you tell us about what happened um, when this erupted in, in, in early early parts of the war? Yes. Um, yeah, as you said, it was, a, it was a military movement and the Afrikaner Rebellion was also the result of uh, political, economic and social issues. There was a split in, in, in the Boer sections of, of South African society uh, between the, the Boer government and uh, then the supporters of the National Party. And they were for the most part Republicans. And uh, Denise Reitz, the soldier and writer and adventurer, uh, also the confidant of Smuts, he made a number of keen observations about the rebellion, and he said that at some point, 50% of the Afrikaner population were not on speaking terms with the other half. And he also said, interestingly enough, that while not every nationalist was a rebel, every rebel was a nationalist. And this referred to the split between the Boer government that put forward a political policy of conciliation in an attempt to unite uh, Boer and British peoples in South Africa, and this policy was, of course, opposed by the nationalists, um, many of whom were still discontent and disgruntled following the loss of the Anglo-Boer War. And uh, what made matters worse at that point was the lack of political franchise and the economic deprivation which many Boers experienced. Uh, and this all took place with the backdrop of uh, the rise of Afrikaner nationalism. And I think an interesting point with regards to African nationalism was that in more modern times, when President Nelson Mandela first started negotiating with P.W. Boerter, uh, well, the story goes that he drew parallels between the Afrikaner rebellion and Afrikaner nationalism and the struggle against apartheid and African uh, nationalism. And of course, that would be 70 years after the Afrikaner rebellion. So, um, Bayes, Maritz, Kemp, and Devet. They were the main Boer leaders that led the rebellion against the Boer government. Uh, interestingly enough, these were all commanders that fought with Boer and Smuts during the Anglo-Boer War. And in response, Boer mobilized his generals and commandants, those that were loyal to him. And they planned operations using the strategy of the central position. So based on intelligence, Boer deployed his forces from around Pretoria. His first target was Bayes, then around Rustenburg. Uh, Boer's forces scattered that of Bayes, and uh, Bayes then retreated. Some of his forces were captured, and uh, he was a complex man uh, who retreated and refused to surrender and later would meet his end through drowning while on the run. The Union Defense Force um, then targeted De Wett in the Free State. De Wett was arguably the best guerrilla tactician of the Anglo-Boer War, and Boer's forces engaged uh, De Wett's commando at the Battle of Mushroom Valley. That proved to be a very tragic scene, as after the battle, uh, Boerter, in speaking to the commander of his bodyguard, said, uh, was crying upon inspecting the, the dead bodies and said, you English will never know how hard this is for me. And that was sort of the dynamic that, that, that he felt in supporting British aims, yet having to, to fight many of his own people. 
on a tactical level, uh, the vet lived up to his legend and escaped the Battle of Mushroom Valley. But an older man than he was in the Anglo-Boer War, he was eventually captured shortly thereafter. And then in a piecemeal fashion, the Union Defence Force defeated the rebel forces. Uh, Kemp's force managed to cross over to German Southwest Africa and join Merritt, who had been injured earlier on. The Germans had supported the Boer rebel leaders in the rebellion, um, but by the end of 1914, uh, January 1915, the rebellion was effectively quashed. The Union Defence Forces uh, prevail, um, putting down the domestic uh, revolt. They still have the problem of German Southwest Africa to deal with. What happened then? Yes, as you said, effectively the first invasion is stalled uh, during the rebellion. Once the rebellion is, is put down, the Union Defence Force then commences invading uh, German Southwest Africa once again, and this time it's executed using a four-pronged advance, using exterior lines of communication. There's a southern force and an eastern force that, acro- that advance across the southern border of German Southwest Africa through the Kalahari Desert and the Namakuland. Then the central force is deployed amphibiously and advanced from Luderitz. They were there previously. And then the northern force under the command of Puerta are deployed amphibiously also, and they advance from Swakopmund. In the south, the southern, eastern, and central forces become the southern army, and Smuts eventually assumes command of this force. While they captured a key part of the south of the colony, the Germans soon became dislocated, attempting to cover a very wide front. So the Germans had just under 7,000 troops, that's including reservists, and the South Africans, on the other hand, had approximately 40,000 troops. Now, the substantial difference in troop numbers has often been considered as the, the deciding factor in the campaign, and I suppose this is a, debate, uh, a matter of debate. And in my book, I put forward my take on this, uh, and anyone who's interested in furthering the debate is welcome to email me. But to give some context, the German force put up the, the, the first substantial defense in the north on the Ritt defensive line. This occurred um, on the northern advance line of, of the northern army, and Boerter then attacks all positions in the defensive line simultaneously, at once enveloping the German force and preventing them from reinforcing any of the other positions on the defensive line. The result of this was a defeat and capture of parts of the German force then, and the retreat of the remainder of the detachment. Following the Battle of Gibeon in the south, most of the German force retreated northwards and proceeded to retreat in a northeasterly direction. It was a case of, of trading space for time and keeping the Union forces in the field to prevent the redeployment to other theaters of the Great War. The German commander at this point was Colonel Frank. The previous commander, a much more competent von Heidebrecht, had died after an accident testing a munition, and Frank lacked the ability of Heidebrecht, and I would argue he certainly couldn't compare to Porter. But at that point, he put, he put out a very strong verbal uh, written order stating that his plan was to withdraw until the point where a monumentous battle was to be fought. This, later we would see, became what the vet called in the Anglo-Boer War a paper shell, which was harmless. So Porta continued deploying his forces uh, using a system of decentralized command, where his commanders acted within the framework of his intent, but also on their own initiative. So I think in broad that just means that he gave them orders, but he didn't micromanage them. Once the German forces were concentrated in the northeast, the South Africans disbanded the southern army and only kept the required soldiers in the field to complete the campaign. And Boote ended up with approximately 5,000 soldiers in the field, which was the same amount as that of the Germans. 
So why do you think South African forces prevailed so effectively against the Germans? Um, I believe the Union Defence Force prevailed uh, because of a superior operational strategy, which is congruent to manoeuvre warfare theory. The final part of the campaign involved a direct advance and a double envelopment of, double envelopment of the German forces, which effectively surrounded and prevented the German force from retreating. Now, the German force surrendered without giving battle, and that's, that becomes interesting uh, amongst military historians, because a force unharmed, that w- unharmed but well-armed, uh, in terms of artillery rifles and machine guns with substantial ammunition in a defensive position, the German force was most probably dislocated physically and psychologically uh, as a result of the position of positioning of the Union forces. And I think it, 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 there's always space for debate with things like uh, the surrender of a force, uh, especially one that doesn't give battle. My opinion is that the, the morale had collapsed, and um, the campaign serves as a textbook example for maneuver warfare. Um, but in his own words, attributed the final victory to the, surpri- the surprise generated from the envelopments of his commanders, uh, Mayberg and Brett. And what was the role of black and non-white soldiers in the campaign? Yeah, um, people of colour had a, a definite and important history on, on both sides of the campaign. Uh, the Union government wanted the war to be open quotation marks white, close quotation marks war. And during the campaign, a captive van Veik, a representative and leader of, of the Basta community in, that's in, in Namibia, uh, asked they were oppressed by, by the German uh, soldiers and you know, following the genocide and so on, the German force could not, did not have any support from the local um, peoples. And so Captain van Veik came to, to uh, General Boerte during the campaign and asked if his soldiers could assist the Union Defence Forces. Uh, Boerte declined this, stating that the war must remain a white man's war. And uh, I sometimes wonder what Captain van Veik must have thought after hearing those words and then seeing so many South African people of colour in the, in the Union camp. So for the Union Defence Force, people of colour had an important combat support function. And this was something that was important for me to, uh, to bring out in the book. And people of colour took the, the role of artillery riders, transport auxiliaries and labourers. And there were some people of colour who were killed in action during the campaign. And during the final advance, over 3,000 servicemen of colour were in the field providing support and enabled the final manoeuvres and victory. And what do you think we learn from the campaign? I think that the campaign makes for an interesting case study for manoeuvre warfare theory. I think there are interesting lessons about the complexity of the military force. There's also lessons in the causes of victory and defeat. It shows that there's a duality in the physical appearance of a force, which may not necessarily represent uh, its psychological state. I think an important, um, an important lesson, something that we can learn, is the role of the commander, which is fundamentally important. And the general must, of course, understand the forces that they command. For Boerte, this was the Union Defence Force, which was certainly not a perfect instrument, not by a long shot. His understanding of the military attributes of the commanders, the mounted infantry, the artillery, his subordinate commanders and the infantry, as well as the nascent air force, that enabled him to make the correct decisions and execute a well-fought campaign. Um, I think the campaign also speaks to the importance of understanding the logistical challenges of war. Um, and some may argue, in fact, uh, Yevet, a good friend of mine, might put forward that the German Southwest Africa 
uh, African campaign supports the saying that amateurs discuss tactics and professionals discuss logistics. And in that, the, the campaign showed the importance of operational uh, pauses, getting the logistics in place, and then rapid advances when required. And finally, Tony, where can people learn more about your research? So um, my book's available. Uh, it's called The First Campaign Victory, South African Maneuver Warfare, the Afrikaner Rebellion and the German Southwest African Campaign. It just rolls off the tongue. Um, and it's available through Hillian and Casemate uh, websites, as well as on Amazon. Tony, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.